Forecast, a look at the week's biggest stories and what they mean from the editors at Factal. I'm Jimmy Levis. Today is March 24th, and in this week's forecast, we take a look at Argentina's debt deal with the International Monetary Fund, Pakistani lawmakers taking up a no-confidence vote, Zimbabwe's by-elections, Yemen peace talks, and an update on Ukraine's besieged city of Mariupol. You can also read about these stories and more in our weekly newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. The International Monetary Fund and Argentina's government will meet Friday. They'll be discussing a controversial support program requested by Argentina to pay its debt to the institution. IMF board members will meet Argentine officials to approve an agreement to refinance the $44 billion credit, which was contracted in 2018 by the Mauricio Macri administration, amid a sustained period of economic hardship in the country. Argentinians will face cuts in social welfare and an increase in gas and electricity prices as part of the budget redistribution to meet payment deadlines. The new agreement sparked violent protests in Buenos Aires earlier this month. Now, the IMF is expected to ratify the agreement, which allows longer payment deadlines, after considering the current challenging global economic scenario worsened by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The approval could spark new protests in the country. The Pakistani National Assembly will convene for a special session Friday to vote on the motion of no confidence against Prime Minister Imran Khan. Pakistan's opposition coalition submitted the no confidence motion against Khan earlier this month, accusing him of mismanaging the economy. In the time since, the opposition has met with parties allied to the ruling PTI party, some PTI members have defected over frustration with Khan's administration. And though the rules require the vote to have taken place by this past Monday, 14 days since the motion was submitted, the vote was scheduled for Friday to accommodate for the Conference of Islamic Countries in Islamabad. Now, no Pakistani Prime Minister has ever completed their full term. However, no Premier has ever been removed from office through this process. Finally, with PTI's biggest ever rally and an opposition march on Islamabad, both planned for Sunday, a potential historic ouster of Khan could lead to violence and political turmoil for the foreseeable future. Zimbabwe will hold its long-awaited by-election Saturday to fill vacancies in the National Assembly and various local positions across the country. Of course, the lead-up to the election has been marred by violence attributed to supporters of the ruling ZANU-PF party. During a rally in Kwekwe for the opposition party Citizens Coalition for Change, a machete-wielding gang killed at least one person and injured more than a dozen others. Amnesty International has called for an investigation into the violence, saying the government's rhetoric has done much to incite such ferocious violence. The police have also blocked new opposition rallies. Now, the election will fill 133 vacancies, including 28 parliamentary seats and 105 council seats. If the opposition manages to secure a number of wins, it could lead to changes in Zimbabwe's power establishment. Finally, Citizens Coalition for Change leader Nelson Chamisa said he's refused an offer for a government of national unity, saying elections should go forward and whoever wins will lead. Talks to resolve the now eight-year-long Yemen conflict are scheduled to begin Tuesday in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, led by the Gulf Cooperation Council. 
Yemen's Houthi rebels rejected an invitation to the talks, saying they would only engage in negotiations on neutral territory. While previously Yemen peace talks took place in countries not directly linked to the conflict, such as Oman, Saudi Arabia heads the coalition fighting the Houthis in Yemen. Now, Gulf Cooperation Council Secretary General Dr. Naif El-Hashraf said the talks would revolve around six points, starting with the military and security access focused on a ceasefire. Additionally, with a global scarcity in oil supply amid Russian sanctions and a stalemate in the Iran nuclear deal, Riyadh is calling for international actors to take a tougher stance on the Houthis' targeting of oil facilities in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. That yielding yet another level of urgency to a conflict that for years has been described as the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Our last item for this forecast is an update on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. For more on that, I spoke with Factual Editor Alex Moore. Hi, Alex. Hello, Jimmy. Well, Alex, it's been about a month since you were here briefing us about Russia and Ukraine. Last time we were talking about Russia amassing troops near the Ukrainian border, and then literally the day after we recorded that, Putin's forces invaded. Yes, exactly. Yeah, tomorrow, which will be March 24th, will mark one month since the full-scale invasion uh, across multiple fronts of Ukraine. And in a couple of days, it will mark one month since Mariupol began to be besieged, which is what we're going to talk about a bit today. Now, this podcast isn't long enough to go into all the enormous developments that have unrolled since the last time you were here. But one thing you mentioned then was that Mariupol seeing combat would be a big deal and potentially very deadly. That sure seems to be the case. Can you give us a rundown on what's going on there and why that particular city is of so much importance? Well, Mariupol has been besieged now for weeks. It was kind of pincered by Russian and Russia-backed forces pushing from Donetsk Oblast, uh, so from the east, as well as what was a pretty substantial naval landing to the west of Mariupol. So Russian forces that did a naval landing on a beachhead and broke out from Crimea, uh, they've seen the most success in this military campaign for Russia of the three broad pushes. So they've been able to expand throughout southern Ukraine along the Black Sea coast and the Sea of Azov coast. Uh, and Mariupol is now the final remaining hub of Ukrainian control along the Sea of Azov. Uh, so the city's been besieged. It is surrounded by, on all sides. And obviously, it's uh, a port city, so it's on water. And Russia, over the past few days, has begun to bombard Mariupol from the sea as well. So um, it's looking pretty dire there. Mariupol is the de facto government uh, capital of Ukraine-controlled Donetsk. And it saw combat a couple of times during the war post-2014, but it was always sort of seen as this beacon of Ukrainian-controlled opposition to the Russia-backed republics in Donetsk and Luhansk. How has the city held up, and have the residents been able to evacuate? Uh, so the city has been pounded over the last few weeks. At least 80% of residential buildings have been destroyed. The Ukrainian forces that are holding the city have released numerous videos of industry being targeted. So the city has been heavily bombarded, both from rocket launchers in the ground, artillery, airstrikes, naval bombardments, as we talked about. There's been critical infrastructure hit. A hospital was hit. The Mariupol Drama Theater, which was housing hundreds of people hiding in a bomb shelter, was hit. A school housing people was hit. So they have been fairly indiscriminate uh, with their targeting. And... 
We don't exactly know the extent to which they control the city, them being the Ukrainians. Um, today, Russia linked sources indicated that they controlled 70% of the city, Russian forces, that is. And a few days ago, the Ukrainian local authorities did sort of indicate that roughly 50% of the city uh, was under Russian control. So what we're seeing is just extremely brutal street fighting. Uh, they're fighting over every block. It's brutal. There's tank combat. It's urban. It's nasty. Unfortunately, residents have seen the brunt of this too. Uh, there have been at least 3,000 civilian casualties up until this point. And the evacuation corridors have been spotty at best. We've now been able to see a few thousand civilians evacuated, but it, it, it's continuing to be spotty. Um, Russia has still continued to, on occasion, shell the corridors. We've seen convoys struck in Zaporizhia after they leave Mariupol. Um, yesterday, there were four children hospitalized after a bus was hit. So even if they're able to leave Mariupol, they're not entirely out of the clear. And the flip side of that, we've seen extreme difficulties getting humanitarian aid into the city, which they badly need. Of course, it's a besieged city. They have no water. They, they're melting snow to drink water. No food, no medicine. Certainly sounds like a bleak situation. Do the Ukrainian forces have any chance at holding the city? Uh, that's tough to say right now. Mariupol is sort of um, indicative of the way the Ukrainians have fought this war in period, which has been trying to gain attrition from the Russian side. They're making them fight over every, every inch of territory, as we talked about. And at the end of the day, they've held out for this long. I don't know how much longer they're going to hold out, but uh, that remains to be seen. You know, a lot of Putin's rhetoric trying to justify the invasion and even some domestic U.S. criticism of the war seems to involve a far-right militia that's involved in the fighting in Mariupol. Can you explain what that's all about? Yeah, so the Azov Battalion, uh, or Azov Brigade, is a far-right-wing militia that sprouted up after the first Russian invasion in 2014. And Mariupol is sort of their, their, their hub, it's their seat. And they were folded under the auspices of the Ukrainian National Guard, which was fighting in what was formerly the anti-terror operation, and it's now the Joint Forces operation. So they're the ones with purview over the Donbass region. And so they are officially part of the Ukrainian government forces, broadly speaking. Uh, and Azov themselves admit that they have roughly 20% of their fighters with professed neo-Nazi views. So obviously that is far from ideal. And Mariupol being their their hub, they're the primary defenders of the city. So a lot of the media that's coming out of combat is coming from Azov. So, you know, Putin, he extends that far broader than just Azov. He's calling, you know, Zelensky a, a drug addict Nazi. But, uh, but as far as select U.S. opposition that you'll see from certain groups, they will primarily focus on Azov. There were multiple movements in Congress over the years during the you know, debates regarding sending lethal aid to Ukraine during the Obama years, during the Trump years, when they began to send defensive lethal aid to Ukraine, there were movements to make sure that none of those weapons went to Azov. So they have been sort of thrust into this prominent position of uh, personifying the Ukrainian armed forces that they don't exactly have. But that is not to diminish the fact that they have uh, some abhorrent views you know, depending on which member you pull out and whatnot. So far from ideal that they're the ones who are defending Mariupol against Russian aggression. But it should also be noted that Russia obviously also deploys, you know, wide swaths of far right wing forces, not just within their own armed forces. I'm talking about 
brigades fighting in Donetsk. I'm talking about the Wagner forces. I'm talking about motorcycle groups that have fought in Donetsk. So it's not at all unique to Ukraine, to be extremely clear. Well, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what do you think folks should be watching for next? Well, if Mariupol were to fall, that would be a massive deal for uh, a couple of reasons. Um, it would completely block off the Sea of Azov access to Ukraine. And as noted earlier, the Russian push in the south has been far more successful than the ones up north, the Sumy, Kharkiv, uh, Kiev. Um, so the Russians are currently stalled pushing west to Mykolaiv, which is the last major city standing between them and Odessa. And obviously, if they were to take Odessa, that would be a massive deal. It would more or less blockade Ukraine from the sea. So freeing up forces fighting over Mariupol, especially considering a lot of them are elite Chechen units to go fight over Mykolaiv, would put Odessa under severe strain. There's also the possibility that they could push north uh, and meet up with Russian forces pushing south through Kharkiv Oblast that are fighting over Izium right now, which is more or less surrounded. They could link up, hypothetically speaking, and isolate dozens of thousands of Ukrainian troops in the Donbass region. That seems like a bit of a stretch considering Russia has had immense issues projecting that sort of power over distance. But Mariupol falling would open up a lot of possibilities that aren't good for Ukraine. Uh, those are the two main ones to note. A, a renewed emphasis on pushing Mykolaiv, which the Ukrainians have repulsed over the last few days, and the possibility of completely isolating uh, Ukrainian forces in the Donbass, of which there are obviously lots of them there. Well, unfortunately, we are way over time today, but as always, I really appreciate your insight here. Thank you, Alex. Of course. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Take care. Today's episode was produced with work from Factual Editors Irene Viora, Avesa Maud, me, Jimmy Levis, and Agnese Bufano. Our interview featured editor Alex Moore, and our music comes courtesy of Andrew Gosby. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Factual Forecast. We publish our forward-looking podcast each Thursday to help you get a jump start on the week ahead. You can, of course, subscribe for free. And if you have feedback, suggestions, or events we've missed, drop us a note by emailing hello at factal.com. <laughs>